Welcome back to Thinking About It. I'm here with Dr. Dave Barker. And uh, Dave, we've got a few conversations in the queue. Like, like we know where we're going now up until now. Let's face it, uh, these were quite off the cuff, but uh, we're a little more organized now. And uh, we've got a number of questions. And the one we're going to talk about today just is a practical matter for churches that take seriously um, the equipping and developing of saints for the work of the ministry. We are, after all, a discipleship institution, a learning institution. And as a pastor, I've often wondered, how do you integrate new believers into the life of the church, particularly when we're congregational and members of the church vote, some more than some churches have more votes than others. But in theory, a congregation has um, authority. It's the ultimate authority. Yeah, they we actually vote on our pastors. We vote on all our, all our leaders and any significant changes we make in the life of the church. Bylaws. Uh, bylaws, yeah. And if we were to ever to challenge doctrinal statement or change yeah. it, we'd have to go back to the congregation, right? And, you know, Paul talks in Ephesians about um, no, be no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning. And so there are people who come into the church, and that's where they're at. They haven't uh, matured yet, but they will. So how do you um, bring them into the life of the church without giving away the store? Uh, what is the minimal requirement of a new believer? What does he have to confess in order to be a member? Or what do we do with membership? Do we defer membership? And with, with baptism, do we... Do we require, as they did in the first century, approving before they're baptized so that when they do join the church, they're not as tossed about as children? They've got some kind of a track record. Does that, can we jump in there? Yeah, that's, it's an ongoing conversation, obviously, right? And uh, churches do it differently. Um, I was always impressed with a, uh, a friend of mine, a guy by the name of... Uh, Dr. Dick Averbeck, he wrote an article, uh, Focus of Baptism in the New Testament, and he wrote it in a journal called Grace Theological Journal. And he talked about the fact that uh, probably in the New Testament, at least in the early times of the New Testament, there would have been no such thing as an unbaptized member or part of the church. And people were being converted from informed faith. They, uh, today, people are not informed in faith. They are, we are very secular but people were being converted from a faith belief, whether Judaism, especially Judaism, into the Jesus way. And so they kind of knew what they were doing uh, when the Ethiopian noble um, uh, came to faith. You know, um, there was an immediate baptism there, but he knew what he was doing. He, he, when he realized who Jesus of Nazareth was, who the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 was all about, uh, there was an informed faith. And so, yeah, he was able to be baptized and join this group of people called Christians or the ones who follow mm-hmm. Jesus. And it was, but I think we need to be a little bit careful of setting that standard for us today because we live in a very different world and a very different culture. And so when it comes to baptism, I think there's a lot more work that has to be done prior to baptism after a profession of faith to help that person understand mm-hmm. exactly what they're, they're buying into. And then I think there's something going on similar to the life to becoming a member of a church. Um, local churches have distinctives. They have identity. 
Uh, they have values. And I think to bring people into the church that haven't been well-informed of those realities and sort of like, you know, give them a vote, mm-hmm. I, I think can be dangerous. I think is a mistake, frankly. So you've got someone who comes into the church life from, let's say, a Mormon background, mm-hmm. steeped in Mormon theology, more than he knows. And uh, he believes the minimal content of the gospel, professes Christ, is born again. Mm-hmm. Um, we would baptize him. Yeah, I, I most think, of us would. Sure, I think there's a fundamental base base that we would then say to this person, you know, are you prepared to follow? Are, are you prepared to understand what Jesus is all about in death, burial, and resurrection? And are you prepared to follow him uh, to the end of your days? I, I do think baptism asks two questions, not one, but that's another discussion for another day. Um, but yeah, I, I think so, for sure. But what if he's messed up on the Trinity or the the, the nature of Christ, does it does it matter at this point? Uh, do, do, does that have to be clarified? Because there are some people who don't even know what the issue is, not to mention people that are messed up on the issue. So can we say we'll deal with that later? It's enough that you professed Christ. Yeah, I, I, I really have no issue with that. I'd be happy to baptize someone who understands the very foundations of what it is to be a believer and a follower of Christ. But I think when it comes to the life of the church, now very often we link baptism with church membership, mm-hmm. but that tends to be people who are fairly well down the road in terms of understanding what the church is. I would always do membership classes or baptismal classes and membership classes, and we would link the two. Uh, so we would talk about baptism, but then we would talk about the church, and we would talk about its theology, its, its bylaws, and, or, and various things that we do. Um, but at the same time, I think for some, there might be needed some space between the baptismal event and actually joining the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a young lady in our church who is a seeker right now. And you know me, I'm a little pushy. I says, why don't you get saved already? What's the holdup? You, you, you know you want to get saved. And she says, I just want to know everything. Huh. So she's delaying her salvation uh, so that she can un- get her head wrapped around everything. And so it's, it's not something I can, I can withhold from her. But obviously she's doing the right thing because she needs to be convinced in her own mind. And uh, God bless her. She'll get saved real soon, I think. <laughs> but when someone does uh, come into the nursery, as it were, in the church family, they're just recently saved, baptized. They don't know anything. The, we've got a like a one-hour class that we give on baptism and another one-hour class on membership. What can you do in that? We give them a lot of information. Here, read this. This is our doctrinal statements, our bylaws. But I'm still, I've always wondered, what if you have a lot of these people who join the church and they're voting members, because the way our bylaws are for most churches is a member's a member's a member. If you're 18 or older, that's enough. But is there a better way of, or should we just think more deeply about how we manage membership? Do we look at something, for instance, like a, a two-tiered member voting and non-voting member? I I don't want to be quoted on this. I sound, we're in a little studio here where no one's listening, but what if people <laughs> listen to this? <laughs> and I'm just thinking out loud, folks. 
Is there a better way of doing that? Are we exposed to a, a risk when we invite people into voting membership who are children tossed to and fro? They've not been matured. Well, um, I like the word catechism. Uh, some of us are afraid of that word, but... That's a good word here. I, I like that word, and I think we need to take it much more seriously. And uh, a friend of ours, we both know him, Dr. Craig Carter, uh, wrote a uh, catechism for his church, Wesley Heights Baptist. Um, I, I did get a copy of it. I can't find it. So I've written him and asked for another copy. Um, it was outstanding. And I really think that we need to do a whole lot more work in equipping, preparing, training, educating uh, our membership when and how we do it, whether it, where it fits into mm-hmm. the vote or not vote, you know, those are practical things that we can talk about. But my passion, of course, I'm a theologian, so that is playing it. But my passion is that we have informed people in our congregations. And I think this is a fabulous opportunity for adult education, mm-hmm. uh, taught by a competent elder or leader in the church, um, so that when we do engage in some of the more, you know, dicey issues in the church, theologically, morally, ethically, structurally, um, we've got people who have gone through some rigor mm-hmm. in thinking about How rigorous? Things. How many weeks does he roll that out? At, I, uh, I can't remember that, but it was certainly more than one hour. Yeah. Um, I think it went over several weeks, if not several months. Um. I can see something like that operating uh, once a week on a Tuesday night or mm-hmm. a Sunday morning or Sunday evening for, I don't know, probably minimum six weeks, if not eight to 12, okay. something like that. I, I just think there's all, I'm, I'm not asking us to teach a systematic theology class, but then I'm asking, why are we not asking to teach a systematic theology mm-hmm. class? Mm-hmm. Is that what it is for Craig? Is it orthodoxy? Uh, right belief, or is it um, practice? I think it's both. But a big part of it, what he is doing there is not only the theological issues wrapped around the doctor. You need to get Christ. him on the phone. You know, I got a gadget here. We could probably get him on a, a third voice. Can you mention that to him if he's up for it? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. We'd love to get him on, and mm-hmm. it'd be great to have Craig on. Um, but I'm sure a lot of what he does is the doctrine of the church. Mm-hmm. and the theology of the church and what that means and how it affects our lives mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. And that will lead into praxis, right? That'll lead into uh, how we live out our, our faith in the, life, in the context of the church. Yeah, we have a, a way of discipling people here, too, in our catechisms. And we're not afraid of that word. It is a catechism. It's just a series of what we call first principles. Mm-hmm. But it's not so much doctrinal. Mm-hmm. It's got more to do with... Um, how are you doing on your marriage? Uh, what is, how, how do you, are you a Christian in your home? Uh, how do you look at your work? Do you do that as a Christian? So it's got a lot to do with your lifestyle. Because what you don't want is someone who has aced your catechism and he knows all the intricacies of theology, but he beats his wife, right? Or he's, he's stealing at work. Uh, so we need to just be concerned that these are the kinds of people that we're inviting into uh, membership where they help steer the direction of the church. Yeah, I and certainly I, I agree with of that. Course. Of course. Um, but 
we are making, often we are making significant decisions when it comes to the life of the church. Mm -hmm. And so to be theologically informed, even in the choosing of the church's leaders, okay, often it's, you know, we're engaged with personality and whether they're, they seem to fit well within the team and all those are important factors. But is it only up to the elders to make sure that this person is theologically orthodox? Um, that the way that the church is going about choosing this person fits well with a biblical ecclesiology? Sure, certainly, your leaders of the church and mm-hmm. your pulpit committee or search committee would need to be informed of that kind of stuff. But it seems to me that we need to have informed congregations who can ask those questions and understand what the answers are and, and expect what the right answer would be. Okay, we're kind of going back and forth from new members to, yeah. but they're voting on who's going to lead them. So how, what kind of criteria do they use? So typically in our churches, we look for people of stature, right? People who are faithful. Uh, we don't know all that they believe, but they're good guys. Mm-hmm. And so the elders will identify them and ask the people to affirm that. But there's nothing by way of um, an examination, and like you would do for a, uh, a pastoral candidate, you would inquire about his theology. Mm-hmm. That would be an interesting... I've never heard of a church that uh, reviews the doctrinal position of, of its elder candidates. They just assume that if you're a member, you believe what the church believes. Hmm. That's interesting. So we're going to put the elders through some kind of, not only catechism, but examination. Yeah. I'm all for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what I do all, all the time. <laughs> we're already we're already having a problem getting elders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll scare them all away. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you'd be open to a consideration of a, um, a, a a period where new members just learn and they're not burdened, if that's a burden, with the responsibility of church politics and even of serving, you know, you say, let's just focus on uh, your worldview and your faith and serving maybe in, a, in minimal ways if there are minimal services. But in terms of leadership, you say, wait for a year or two. Is that something? Yeah, I think it, it varies for individual to individual for sure. But again, I'm back to some basic catechism that goes beyond, you know, an hour for baptism and an hour for church membership. I I think that this is a fabulous opportunity to develop a church Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. membership that is relatively well-informed when it comes to what the church is, what we believe, and what the structures of our church are. I think, you know, every church has different structures, so Mm -hmm. we need to be informed on that as well. Okay, Dave, my friend, uh, we are out of time. Get Craig Carter and see what we can do in the future. But yeah. Until then, thanks for listening to us on Thinking About It. I'm Bob McGregor. I'm Dave Barker. And we'll see you next time.